All right, hey everybody, Todd Mitchell here. Time for Game Dev Breakdown. This time we have a huge, amazing, awesome guest, David Fox, Lucasfilm Games employee number three. He has worked on some of the most iconic graphic adventure games of all time, Maniac Mansion, Thimbleweed Park most recently, and a bunch of great stuff in between. So a lot of interesting things to talk about. I won't hold you up. Here's David Fox. Good evening, fans. Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Boom shakalaka! My mom gave birth in 1985. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much for letting me give you a call. Sure. And just so you know, I'm on the tail end of a cold and may have to cough. So you get to hopefully edit that out if i do oh yeah absolutely i actually can't believe you said that because i i almost had to postpone today because i am dealing with such a bad uh it's back to school plague is what it is my son goes to preschool and uh sure enough two weeks after they started i am sick as a dog yep <laughs> yeah, the, new, the new crop from the new students bringing in something to share yeah unbelievable so uh well <laughs> i pre- i especially appreciate you pushing through in that case um and you're you're just getting back from Germany, is that right? Yeah. Well, we we've now pretty much. I mean, that that's where I caught the cold on the flight back. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, I think we've been back for a week and a half now. So totally back on local time, and except for the remnants of the cough, pretty good. And that's where you gave the talk on uh, Indiana Jones, is that right? Yes. I got to watch that. I really enjoyed that as well. The uh, How did that panel go? What was the panel you were, you were appearing on? Well, the panel was separate. That was on tools for creating text in games. So like, you know, branching tools and, and different, or it wasn't just tools. It was, you know, best practices and experiences that we had. So everyone on the panel had been on projects that had a lot of text that either had to be translated or um, had to track interactive stuff. All of our stuff was homegrown, so I didn't have anything I could share that would be applicable to other people other than, say, using Excel for translations, um, you know, for sp- in spreadsheets. Still very cool, and I, I sort of have some questions for you along those lines, but first I guess we should sort of set the table. Uh, for anybody not familiar with your work, um, I hate to make you go through all of it because it's a very uh, awesome career you've had so far, but uh, give give listeners who aren't familiar just the highlights of uh, where you've worked and sort of your major projects. Sure. Well, the what I'm probably most known for is my time at, at Lucas, so Lucasfilm. Star Wars company or used to be the Star Wars company. I guess it still is. Um, And um, I was hired in 1982 at the very beginning of what was then the games group, which was a kind of experimental group within the computer division of Lucasfilm. I was the third person brought in. So I was there from the very beginning that became Lucasfilm games, which eventually became LucasArts. And during the time there, I was um, project leader and designer on a bunch of games and programmer on, I guess, one. So so I rescued on Fractalus, mm-hmm. um, then Maniac Mansion. I 
no, sorry, Labyrinth was next. And then Maniac Mansion, Ron Gilbert was the project leader. And I came on as the scum scripter, number one, first person to do scum scripting in a game other than Ron. <laughs> then I took that knowledge to my own game, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. And then Ron, myself, and Noah Falstein got together for Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, the graphic adventure, which was why I went to DevCon to talk. This is our, the 30th anniversary of that game. And I was a producer on a game called Pipe Dream and then started doing some location-based entertainment stuff at Lucas. Outside of LucasArts, we had a separate group that we started up just for that. I was doing that for the last two years I was there. And unfortunately, that never saw the light of day. Never, it never made it to mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, some more games. The company got Rocket Science Games, which I skip that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then, uh, then it kind of went off into internet related stuff. Uh, there was a company called talk city, T A L K rather than talk city. <laughs> yeah. And it was an online community. Basically it was, it grew up in Apple and when Apple decided they didn't want to do their own version of AOL, we went to the internet and did this as a separate standalone project. And it was, you know, a lot of community, a lot of scheduled uh, programming and was there for four years and another location was entertainment company and then got to do some interactive work for Disney as a consultant with my wife for theme park overlay games. And then uh, iPad came out and started just, okay, I got to get back into doing development. And so I took some of my wife's books that she had written and converted them into interactive iPad apps and then a Rube Goldberg-inspired game of actually official Rube Goldberg puzzle game for mobile and desktop in, in 2000. And I think it was 2014, no, 2013 it came out. And then Thimbleweed Park um, was on the team that did that game. Right. That's pretty much up to date. I have to uh, take a quick moment to thank you because uh, I dug into Thimbleweed Park again over the weekend in anticipation of our talk. And uh, my four-year-old is now walking around saying things like, I can't seem to do that. Or uh, (laughs) I can't can't pick that up. (laughs) I I assume he hasn't played played as Ransom yet. Otherwise, he'll be going around. You know, beeping his, his language all the time. <laughs> that was a funny thing because I, I did get through, um, started started over on the Xbox basically up in the toy room. And I did get to that part. And because I had the text showing up on the screen as the dialogue was happening, I, I sort of knew when to like loud cough or, you know, eventually just turn it off. <laughs> mm, yeah. But uh, that's, that's uh, just a fantastic game for fans of the old uh, graphical adventures. And as as I started digging into your background, sort of in anticipation of the call, I learned that's, and and this is a compliment, even though it doesn't sound like one, that's one of the less interesting things about you. Okay. I love those games and I love that work, but uh, s- sort of the, the variety of things you've done in your career and sort of your vision uh, about technology issues, I, I've really enjoyed sort of looking into the stuff that you do and the, and the things you've been a part of. Thank you. I hope that makes sense and didn't sound like a terrible insult. That was one of those uh, risk versus reward comments I made. <laughs> yeah, well, well, the vehicle that I've used mostly has been games and interactive entertainment, but the motivation is always from 
you know, making a difference on the planet, doing things that will affect people deeply. Yeah, I don't always see the thread in the games I've worked on, but that's always been the impetus behind the work I've been doing. And uh, I, I saw from your resume that you've you've studied both engineering and psychology. Is that correct? Yeah, engineering. I don't know. I I, I was an undergrad in an engineering student for two years, and I really don't consider it that I studied engineering yet. You know, there's where you just take general courses and sure. did terribly in those, and realized, nope, this is not what I'm going to be. <laughs> I was going to say, did you want to build androids or what was the plan <laughs> between those two focus I areas? I don't know. I mean, this is before computer games. So what did you sort of see yourself doing as a career? I don't think I knew. Um, I I didn't have, I mean, I wasn't sparked with anything until a couple years of after joining, going to UCLA, I started doing you know, psychodrama and humanistic psychology type stuff and realized, okay, this is... I'm feeling really passionate about this. I'm not feeling passionate about punch cards and computers. <laughs> um, let me do a switch. So that's why I ended up switching to, you know, University of California at Sonoma, where they had a specific humanistic psychology program and transferred there. And that's where I ended up doing and ended up doing some kind of new age woo woo stuff after that and had a private practice for a couple years and, Really, the impetus for getting into games was that I had the thought that I wonder if there's a way to reach more people, have more of an impact, a much wider impact than, you know, maybe a dozen people a week of one-to-one counseling. Could I do something in a game which would have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people getting impacted? And at that point, this was 1975 or six. I didn't really know enough about computers to to go down that path, I was actually thinking about an interactive Disneyland um, as a endpoint for this, where you'd be immersed in something that you'd have to pretty much learn about yourself to to get through these experiences, or or just by going through them, you'd have an amazing um, some realizations about who you are and how you operate. So my wife and I started a public access microcomputer center primarily so I could learn about computers. This is when they were just coming out in 1977. Mm-hmm. And we were a nonprofit. Um, we, had a, we started with 10. We ended up with like 45, I think, computers. And a great space that used to be a library at a school that closed for lack of students, public school. Mm-hmm. And we did classes and Kids would come in for birthday parties and rent time on the computers and, you know, for playing games. We did outreach to schools. And this is kind of the period before anyone had personal computers. Often at, on field trips when kids would come in, Annie, who my wife, who was the educator for this whole thing, would ask them, how many of you have ever seen or touched a computer? And you might get one or two kids out of 30. Yeah. So, of course... In five years, that had flipped, and you know, either through our center or they were starting to buy the computers themselves, or they started getting access to them in schools. So schools started uh, purchasing them. Um, then it changed. That was also the bridge to getting the job at Lucas because of connections with people. Because the book I I did there, I was there on computer animation, and I got to do research talking to people at the Lucasfilm Computer Division. 
So a year later, my book was completed, and that's when I heard about the new games group. So I actually used my my manuscript as proof that I was interested in this stuff or that I could do it. And the fact that Atari had invested a million dollars into the starting of this group, and my book was about the Atari computer, um, was also a perfect match. So it was like all these kind of synchronicities kept on happening. And when I, when I talk about it, it seems like, how, you know, how did I end up choosing to live in Marin County, which is where Lucasfilm was based, and how the center where people came in who members who actually worked at Industrial Light and Magic at Lucasfilm and this connection with the computer division, all, all this stuff it just like, seems like, you know, backtracking from my goal and, and seeing all the different things I had to do. So, you know, if this were a Zach McCracken game, then I got psychic you know, dream messages about what <laughs> I should be doing next. I, sometimes I wonder about that. It seems like, um, from my experience, people who are sort of out there with a motor and they're doing their own thing and they've got stuff they want to try and they're out there uh, doing stuff like, like these sort of self-started projects that you've done. Uh, I, I do find that those coincidences and those convenient, uh, you know, happy accidents and stuff do tend to follow those people. They, those people do get to, to do the things that they're interested in. And, and those, uh, unexpected things do pop up more often for those people. And I don't think that's a coincidence, you know? Yeah. Well, it can't be, I think part of it is just having your eyes open and looking for these synchronicities. I could have chosen to say when I heard about the games group, I could have, could have just said, oh, interesting, and not have the thought like, that's where I want to be. You know, at each point, there's a choice of, you know, which way do you go and do you make the choice that takes you to your end goal, actually. Did it feel like a gamble to open a microcomputer facility, basically the first one of its kind in the late 70s? That that had to be a scary decision. It was kind of scary, but, you know, because it was nonprofit and we weren't we weren't selling computers, we were educational. Um, so we got a lot of support from both the school systems and from the local computer stores that were selling them because we weren't competing with them in anything. We did have people say this is a crazy, stupid idea. And it just felt like where we had to go. So we just did it. And I was, we were pretty young, so I was like uh, 27 at the time when we opened, and we had never done this before. Um, my wife was an educator; she had a teaching, you know, a master's degree in early childhood education, and she had a teaching credentials. So I felt that she could do the learning part of it pretty easily. And it just felt like the right thing to do. And for a while, it was really hard to get the funding, but someone, a friend, believed in us and actually co-signed the loan that we needed in order to get the computers. And later on, once we had our nonprofit status, we were able to get some grants to expand the computers and various companies would give us software and, and more computers. And so, it, you know, kind of worked really well during that interim period. And uh, we also did conversions of games. So we would take uh, work with Scott Adams of Adventure International and he had written his text adventures in basic using the, on the radio shack, the TRS 80. And we offered to do adaptations of them for the Apple II, as well as you know, CPM based machines. And that was something I did. So in the, in the process of doing that, I got to learn how he coded and, you know, be, by being in the middle of his code and looking at his choices and finding, you know, occasional bugs. And that was a great way to 
to learn about game design was by pouring through and adapting other people's code. Another happy coincidence. Yeah. Well, and we got a, a small royalty stream for, for games you know, that we had adapted or converted. Mm-hmm. Things like that were really good. I mean, it was times it was really tight. Um, for me, it's not a natural thing to be promoting, self-promoting in a way which would bring a lot of people into the computer center at the time. So I remember being stressful at points, but um, overall it was, you know, really fun experience to do it. And uh, one of the books you worked on at that time, you said was uh, animation focused. Yes. You told a story on your website about being a young person and being so fascinated by this that you went sort of digging through Hanna-Barbera's garbage. (laughs) Please fill that out for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I grew up in Los Angeles and at the time, I guess I must have been uh, 12 or 13. We lived in Studio City, which was not too far from their studios. And I remember riding my bike to the back of the studios where there was a, a huge trash bin and it was unlocked and it might even been open and just looked inside and we just started taking stacks of discarded cells and backgrounds, you know, watercolor backgrounds and, and se- sequences of cells. Cause they, when they threw them out, they were in the order that they had been when they were filming them. So, uh, and they were all numbered. So I often would get like, you know, huge chunks. I think I had, you know, as much as I could carry my bike, which is probably kind of heavy. Yeah. It's probably a, maybe a six inch, five or six inch tall stack of cells and took them back home and went through them and saw what I had. And then I actually had a super eight or I can't remember if it was super eight or eight millimeter camera that could do single frame photography or stop motion photography. And I just went through and tried to reanimate these cells, you know, going one by one and, you know, putting the next one and doing it and then just seeing what, how it was. So just kind of taking it apart and, and having fun putting it back together again. So it wasn't anything original. It wasn't a story. It was more of a, an experiment to see how it actually works and see if I can make it happen. Yeah. It so, sounded kind of mechanical in nature, the, the whole thing for you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, is, is animation something that you sort of continued to develop as you grew older and, and started to work or has that always been sort of more of a mechanical thing for you? Well, I'm not an artist. Um, so I never really created it myself. I, I, there's still something I like. I mean, I love the idea of doing either stop motion or time-lapse photography. Uh, I, I like that there's a feature on my iPhone, which lets me do time-lapse and I've done that a bunch of times just to kind of switch the way that you see the world by making something that you're looking at happen really fast. I have to admit, I love doing that too. Uh, I, I enjoy nothing more than, um, here, here in the Missouri area, we, we get pretty good snowfall and I, I love setting up the night before snow hits and, mm. and just leave it going overnight. So you can just see the, the ground cover or even, uh, rainwater rise and stuff. I've, I've always liked that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or plants opening. Um, it, it's, I think it was maybe seventh or eighth grade. Um, I had a science fair project that was all around stop motion photography or time-lapse photography really. And got a prize for doing that. And so it was something that that's been an interest for a long time. So it kind of fits in well with, with the computer stuff. Although I never went the direction of actually creating the animation myself. 
but I bet it helped when you were ready to work with them at uh, <laughs> Lucasfilm Games and, and in those kind of project capacities. Yeah, I, I think it did. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and and if anybody has not, I, I'm guessing people have not because it's a relatively recent talk, but uh, I would strongly encourage people to check out the talk you gave at, um, the event was DevCom, Gamescom, what was it? Yeah, DevCom. DevCom, so yes. DevCom 2019, and there's a, the talk, the Indiana Jones talk was with myself and Noah Falstein. Yeah. And I think, I think like right now it's my pinned tweet on my Twitter profile you need the url for that yeah i was able to pull that one up on twitch where they recorded that uh i actually airplayed it on the tv and that was a a nice way to spend Mm. a little time um really cool uh discussion of the uh skywalker ranch and you know your your time during that the team and how how it evolved so i sort of don't want to rehash too much of what you've just recently uh put out there i just hit the microphone my fault obviously during that time you, you worked on just iconic games that uh, are still just widely celebrated, deeply loved by fans. Do you feel like your time there working on those games was a little bit of an opportunity to sort of create those stimulating experiences that you're, that you talk about? Hopefully the activity itself is sort of creating a little bit of a positive change in the way people look at things and the way their brain works, or was it simply like, like we talked about more mechanical for you? Was it just sort of here it is, how can we do it the best we can? I think of the games I did there, the, the one that might match the most would be Zach McCracken. And in that one, I got to put in a whole bunch of the new age ideas and kind of push them in a, in a way where they were mostly tongue in cheek and, a parody of, of all that, but still people were imagining being able to mind link with animals and teleporting and just doing things which you shouldn't be able to do outside of like an X-Files experience or something. Okay. And that also was of the games I did. One of the only games I worked on, you know, for sure. Okay. The only story based game I worked on that came directly from myself Labyrinth and Indy were both both based on movies. Maniac Mansion was based on Ron Gilbert and, and Gary Winnick's design. Um, so I was in those three. I was working in someone else's universe. Rescue and Fractalist really wasn't a story game. It was my attempt to enter the world of Star Wars yeah. as a pilot and get that first person experience that I I really loved from the movie. And also being inspired by the Atari game Star Raiders. And how could you do that with landscapes? So I think Zach is really the only game during that period where where that would be the case. And and also Thimbleweed Park. That was also in a universe that Ron Gary uh, had first thought up. So I think there's more games in me that might be more in that direction. You know, when I write dialogue, there's always... I'm aware of the stuff and trying to add it when I can, but probably Zach is the closest in terms of being able to get it across. Mm-hmm. And so we, we know a little bit about how you developed your more technical skills, but it has a lot of work gone into sort of boning up on writing dialogue, uh, story structure, things like that. Like where did you pick that up or did it sort of come naturally to you? I don't think I took any courses on that other than maybe an eighth grade creative writing class. Yeah. <laughs> um, my wife's a writer, so she she becomes my muse. And 
helper when it comes to things like that. You know, if, if there's story stuff, we'll, we'll be bouncing ideas back and forth. Um, I might let her look at dialogue that I've written occasionally if, if I need to get feedback on that. But I think it's just, you know, loving movies and stories and just absorbing what I like and don't like about those. And you didn't know when you got to Lucasfilm Games that you would not be able to work directly on Star Wars stuff for some time. That's correct. <laughs> um, I found that out the first day when I was thinking of this Rescue on Fractalus game because the intent was it would be a Star Wars-based game. That's what I wanted to do. And found out, nope, you can't do Star Wars because the license is already sold to other companies. So, um, And that was pretty much the case during the eight years I was doing the you know game related stuff, you know, home game market at Lucas at Lucasfilm Games and LucasArts. And then when I did the two years for the location based entertainment project at Lucas, um, we actually did get permission to use a Star Wars themed experience, um, figuring that would be the the most viable, most popular of the ones the ideas I came up with. And so I actually you know, did this game, which kind of was taking Rescue on Fractalus and putting it on steroids because we essentially think of being able to do um, a flight game through canyons, but doing it on a professional flight simulator. And in the early 90s, that would have been you know, still with, you know, multiple projectors and 60 frames per second, anti-aliased imagery and textures and stuff, which, you know, it's given now with any any game that you can get now in the last 10 or 15 years but back then you had to have like a million dollar image generator to produce that kind of quality so it was a super expensive game system really that i got to do this game for um and got to play it and unfortunately not very many of the people got to play it yeah, I, that's another sort of a tragic disappointment is uh, you sort of have a, a passion and a talent for how you describe uh, location-based sort of interactive experiences. And uh, it seems to me that the technology has never really kept up with uh, what you should be able to do or what you might like to do. And man, what a shame. Yeah, there, there. I think we're getting pretty close. There are several experiences I've done in the last year or two that come close to some of the things I imagined, you know, with virtual reality and the void and where you have a, a physical environment you're going through, which matches objects, match position of the virtual reality experience. So if you see a bench and you can reach over and sit down on that bench, mm -hmm. um, there's actually a physical bench there. Or if you see a doorway, you can reach and grab it for support and it's right there. Um, so all of a sudden the virtual world becomes something you can trust. And if you see it there, then it becomes real. And then of course, when you see a monster out in front of you, then that makes it even more impressive because you already have this mindset change that everything is real. The other was uh, dreamscape immersive in Los Angeles, which is doing something similar, but they were doing experiences that were more family oriented and didn't, weren't shoot em up style games. Right. And did that with, with Annie and where she, where she would not have enjoyed the Star Wars experience at the void. She loved doing the ones that we did there. And I think that's closer to what I was imagining. 
terms of um, experience, except, you know, unfortunately they're like, you know, 10 minutes long and you go in and they're, they're not super interactive. There is a path you're going through. Um, you really can't do a long form experience where you're in there for hours right. or days. There was a project that we were dreaming of back in 1978 at the computer center, which was, which we call the starship simulation project. And you got a grant, I think it was a $60,000 grant that mostly covered outreach for schools and computers, but 4,000 of that was earmarked for this project, which isn't very much to do anything with, but we, you know, we had a bunch of volunteers who we'd meet weekly and we came up with these concepts of essentially it was like taking Star Trek bridge and setting up five stations, five computers with a big central um, view screen uh, projector and the idea of being able to go on extended experiences for, for hours. It'd be amazing. And, you know, we, we got to the point of brainstorming and, and scenarios and ideas of how it would work, but never to the point where we actually had any technology working. We never got to that stage, but it was more of a dream stage of it. And we had some artist renderings and I think we made a 3d model, um, out of paper and cardboard and stuff to show what the bridge would look like. And it was, it was really cool. And then, you know, there are things that have happened like that. They're similar, but they're, again, they're all intended to be short form. So I don't know of anyone who's been doing, um, taking a place like the void and, and adapting it. So they could, you could do a three hour game. There, there was a book that I read in the early eighties called uh, dream park mm-hmm. by, Larry Niven and Stephen Barnes, which talks about something like this, but on a much grander scale and something in the future where you're actually going on, you know, multi-day adventures inside of a controlled space where there are holograms and physical effects and, you know, just kind of very close. So, you know, that, that was part of it. There's also a, a mystery that kind of goes along with it, but it's a pretty compelling story if people are interested in seeing where this came from. But this is stuff I was thinking about even before reading these books. That sort of just confirms my suspicion. We're definitely missing out on awesome creative projects from you because the technology just hasn't been there. <laughs> yeah. Have you tried the, uh, the Oculus quest? I haven't tried the quest. I have a, a vibe that I've been playing with mostly looking at other people's games that they've created there to see what new, you know, standards and rules people have come up with in order to say, do narrative in a VR space. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty early in my research on that. I have a lot, I have a huge backlog that I haven't played yet that I have to go through. Is it acceptable to go to Mickey D's just for a drink? <laughs> of course it is. But good luck leaving with just a drink. It's more than a drink. It's a Mickey D's drink. And right now, a small Minute Maid slushie is just $1.59. So all you have to do is choose a flavor, like the tropical mango or strawberry watermelon, and enjoy like it's meant to be enjoyed. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. 
Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. What I like about the Quest is that it's untethered and that's a a, a huge issue with most of the ones I've seen or either even at like the void or dreamscape you're you're wearing a backpack computer which could weigh like 30 or 40 pounds or at least 30 30 pounds and your headset is near your your goggles and everything are tied to that so even though you're untethered in a space you still have you're not really free in a way which makes it easy to walk around. Yeah. My, my first exposure to sort of modern virtual reality was uh, actually the Windows. It was made by Acer, I think. The Windows Mixed Reality headset. Uh-huh. I'm not even right. sure they still sell that. But I basically picked up a freelance project, and they didn't tell me much about the, the client, but it turned out to be Lenovo. And we were working on a, a tour of a, a wind turbine that you could you know climb to the top and look out and everything. It was very cool. But I, you know, during that time, that was, you know, my first experience with it was to actually develop for it. And I'm, yeah, just like you say, it's, it's tethered to the PC from the head, which is uh, sort of a weird feeling. And uh, I just picked up an Oculus Quest and it's incredible having, you know, just sort of that freedom. And it's, it's like a pound or two heavier for sure. But once you're sort of used to it, you mark off on the floor using your controllers, you know, the safe space because it has the pass-through cameras so you can look at your room and, uh, you know, point out on the floor where it's safe for you to go. And if you get too close to that, it shows what looks a lot to me like sort of the Star Trek holodeck walls, you know, the sort right. of grid around the room. Mm-hmm. And the first time I saw that grid around me, I thought, oh boy, here we go. We're finally getting there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's just so, so awesome. Are you overall happy with the progress VR has made or do you think we should be further along? I'm pretty happy. I mean, I, I was dabbling with this back in 1992 and the tech then was just pretty unworkable between the, the lag time and the frame rates and all the, um, and the cost Disney attempted to do something with VR when they did their Disney quest centers and got to spend a day or evening going, you know, playing all the different games they had there back in the mid to late nineties. And it was still clunky as a designer. Whenever I do one of these, I immediately think about what I like and what I don't like. And sometimes it's hard to be immersed in the experience without having this critic talking in my head, you know, saying, yeah. you know, what, what worked and what didn't work. So for me, it's a lot of it's really a research and learning experience, but you know, I think that they're getting closer and I think that, Going to centers, uh, location-based entertainment or LBVER centers are probably going to be the first exposure most people are going to have to this, especially as those get better. And then at some point, 
you know, future versions of the Quest that are less expensive and more powerful will probably be the way people will end up entering because most people aren't going to have or buy a high-end PC to to use for, for gaming like that. Yeah. So in the 90s, you, you wrote a paper, which I recently read, about basically this topic, where we are at that time with virtual reality, where you think we'll go. And uh, I think it, it holds up. The ideas you put forward uh, sound absolutely right, even still today. But the the main idea you shared there was that software and not the hardware is what's going to be the next, you know, big jump and the biggest impact that we have with virtual reality. And that's, of course, for designers, like you say, and things like dialogue. And I wonder, with sort of the most recent advances we've had, is it possible that maybe indie developers, people who aren't necessarily stuck in the old hunt for funding or, you know, the, the race for the next prototype and stuff. I sort of wonder if people who can sort of slow down and spend time with it, if maybe that's having a good impact on where we're going with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, an indie developer is much more able to, to do something experimental or, or out there or creative. They don't have a large marketing department telling them that this isn't going to be viable. It's not going to be enough of a return on their investment. So you shouldn't do this. Right. They're, probably mostly doing it because of the passion part of it, which I think is always, it's going to help the quality of the experience afterwards. If you're, if people are really committed to it and love doing it, there's, I think there's still a cost barrier. If you're talking about fully rendered, beautiful 3d worlds, those are still fairly expensive to produce in terms of, you know, having an art department, art team to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think there are things that are, you know, much easier. I mean, like Dave Grossman, who used to be at LucasArts as a game designer, has a company, or I don't know if it's his or if he's working there. I think it, he's one of the founders of this company called Earplay. And they're doing virtual, they're doing adventure games with audio only. And oh. that's really experimental and that's really interesting because I think that's a huge component of any game. But if you just strip away all the visuals and just do it with audio, then I think that's pretty cool. I think you can play them on Alexa and, and other boxes, but you also probably download them for, I think there's mobile versions. And I think they're also supporting some of the new 3D uh, or spatial audio headsets like Bose has an AR series of devices mm-hmm. where you actually can tell which way you're, point, you're looking. So you have you know spatialized sound coming into your ears, but without the visual. So it's still audio only. I would love to try that. That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so there's places on the on the spectrum of cost that where you could do some really innovative stuff without having to spend millions of dollars on a project. Speaking in terms of broader uh, software development, at, le- at least broader game development, this concept that you know we have potential to design software, interactive experiences, etc in a way that makes a positive change for players. This isn't to say that everything has to be edutainment or, uh, you know, classroom tool or anything like that. However, when we, when we talk about toxic game communities or player bases or things like that, problems that we have in gaming between players and other players, players and developers, sometimes I wonder if maybe that's a, a product of, you know, we, we have not spent enough effort on this sort of thing. Like, we haven't maybe been the best custodians of the impact that we have with games and not that we're doing anything deeply negative, but we're just not trying to do anything necessarily positive. Do you think that sort of creates a vacuum for, I don't know, negativity to creep in? Um, yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that. I feel like there's 
definitely a divide with people who are aware of the ramifications of the games they're doing and maybe they they want to choose to do something where either it's more put you know politically correct or ethical or you know all-inclusive and then there's games where that's not an issue at all and i have a pretty sharp voice or compass or something that comes up when when i play something that feels off and and i'm still refining it and learning and the whole you know me too movement and um all the things that i mean there's a whole bunch of stuff which came up recently with abusive people in the games industry um every, ranging from you know sexual abuse down to just you know to work environment abuse right. and there's just been an ongoing conversation about um you know crunch mode and and how much is the game industry kind of burning out and using up the young talent because they can and partly because a lot of people will do anything to get into the game industry and so they makes it much harder for them to say no i'm not going to do that i'm not going to put in 80 hours this week mm-hmm. so i think that's kind of flown off from your your question but that's i think kind of critical is to have the environment in which this these games are made to to not take a huge toll on the people who are creating them and be able to you know actually have a company that supports a really good work life balance and not pushes people to work you know, huge numbers of hours at the detriment of their health or their other relationships or family. I, I think it's fair to maybe refocus that that question into, uh, you know, interpersonal issues and environment issues. I would like to, uh, I mean, from my perspective as somebody who's not in a major game development area, I would love to see the industry uh, spread out a little bit. You know, I, I would like to see more. If if not, I understand there are going to be cities where you can't just have a major studio because there aren't enough people at all, much less IT-focused uh, individuals and people with uh, game design experience and stuff like that, but um, at least more major cities. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it, it seems like if we can sort of give more people more opportunities, yeah, maybe things get better for everybody. Yeah, well, well I mean, at Thimbleweed Park, there was no office Everything was, you know, done in our own homes and everything was done virtually. We use Slack to mm-hmm. communicate and all the different tools you can, you know, Dropbox and other places to share files and and get for code. And it was all, it didn't really have to be in the same room. We, at the very beginning of the project, Ron and Noah, sorry, Ron and Gary and I were, did our brainstorming in the same room. And I think that was really helpful would have been harder to do that virtually with you know big whiteboards all over the place and notes and and having that immediacy that you don't get but for coding and for other stuff you know relatively short talks and and conversations about what to do next and how to do this we did definitely didn't have to be together so that kind of frees up not having at least for indie projects not having to be based in the same office and you know for that for for thimbleweed park we had people in Europe, we had people across the United States and across um, up in Canada, and you know, so it was people in, in a whole bunch of different time zones. That you know, really wasn't an, an issue. Someone was usually awake somewhere working on the game. I mean, needless to say, that certainly makes some aspects maybe a little more challenging in terms of syncing up between people. But it does seem like a really great way 
to increase sort of diversity of perspectives and backgrounds and things like that. And I, I really hope we move in further in that direction too. It, it seems like a really good way to get more people involved from uh, just all walks of life. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that for a, a big title, like especially a triple a title that that's not likely to happen, but for small indie projects, I think it, it could happen easily. Yeah. At, at some point in your career, you also, get to do some political stuff. I, I don't always dig into people's like sort of uh, political activities or anything, but in your case, it, it really does seem like it's all driven by, you seem like a person with like very deep empathy for people and, and your sort of awareness of the community and things. So, I mean, how, how long did you get to do that? Like what, what was that experience like working on uh, political campaigns and stuff like that? Well, I've kind of, I think the the main one I did would have been for the 2004, for election and we I was in a grassroots media group in the Bay Area working, you know, contributing our time to for Howard Dean, which we liked a lot at the time as a candidate. And that was it was, you know, empowering to do that and really enjoy doing it. I mean there are other projects I've been done that are more environmentally oriented, either websites or um, organizations there was a, a long period where I was doing a lot of website work and, you know, both design and programming and mm. doing it for mostly for nonprofits. And that was a lot of fun because I felt like I was contributing to what they were doing more recently. I mean, I've been thinking about like, how could you take, I feel like the climate crisis is probably one of my, one of my number one priorities and focuses outside mm. of gaming. I've been thinking about how to take, either virtual reality technology or other tech and try to make some of this more visceral, more experiential for people. Um, when you hear numbers and predictions about what could happen, it's just not very real for people. But if you can actually be immersed in, in a future landscape that has the effects of, you know, negative effects of climate change uh, as part of it, then that might be a, a much more visceral experience that might actually change people's perception of the whole thing. Um, so I've been kind of playing around with that in my mind a bit. But how, how can you, how can you do that? There, there was something on the weather channel about a year ago where they were showing the, re, the impact of storm surge at different levels by having a guy, a, the reporter was standing on a street and talking about this. And as he's talking about the different levels of water, um, at one foot, two foot, three foot, five foot, ten foot. You, you could see he was like standing in the center of a cylinder of water um, as the water was rising. He was, he was protected, but you could see it flowing all around him and cars floating by and and debris flying across. And it was, I think, it was mostly must have been a CG simulation, obviously, mm -hmm. but it was very dynamic. And and by putting a, a real person in that and and seeing it from the, from his point of view, essentially, it was much more. Uh, realistic and understandable than say a top-down view of a bunch of, of of a flood with cars floating by this kind of put a human perspective on it it's a good point uh we're able to do things with vr and i haven't seen a lot of it yet but almost sort of the th type of things we used to do in cartoons with like magic school, school bus they'd start an episode and okay this time the bus is going to shrink down and go inside the veins you know you could do any amount of this sort of stuff like okay now you're inside the human brain you're going to watch what happens when this fires and this connects and, and all this stuff 
from from that all the way up to you know planetary scale watch what happens to the earth in this simulation over the next uh you know 10 years or, or whatever it is and sort of putting that in people's faces and letting them see things that you know you don't get from a news story uh that, right. i agree that that seems like it has enormous potential to sort of help people internalize what's actually happening yeah well if any of your listeners happen to be inspired by that and want to talk to me about it about how this would how we could do it yeah, please contact me yeah, let's let's uh, make it happen for sure. Yeah, you you said Howard Dean, and I thought I thought back because I hadn't heard that name in so long. Unfortunately, I thought back to the night that we we all heard about like basically the last big campaign story we heard from him, which was basically nothing but he got excited on camera, <laughs> and I, yeah. I thought. I watched that on a laptop in tech school in like what I guess two thousand four. Then, then in my head, I just like smash cut to today and the things we all see every single day. God, he must he must think about this every day. Yeah, and, and even that was an engineered story. I mean, he he's basically in a in a room filled with his supporters. I think they had just won a primary, and there like you know hundreds and hundreds of people, and they were everyone yelling and screaming, and he had a microphone. And he yelled a Yahoo type yell <laughs> into the microphone and no one in the room could hear him say that. I mean, he was being drowned out by the crowd, but he had a microphone and the microphone went to um, directly to the news feed. And what they heard was this crazy guy yelling, screaming at the top of his lungs into a microphone. Uh, they didn't hear the point of view of what it was like from outside of off the stage in retrospect he probably shouldn't have done that if he knew what it was going to sound like but you know he was being emotional in the in the moment and just it was was sad because it made him look crazy in a way that he wasn't by constantly repeating the story um in a way which was to his detriment and and it's fascinating how much we've changed as a society (laughs) that this was on our radar at all you know what right. I mean? Like now, yeah. now it's like, I, I guess we're getting desensitized to it, which is sort of scary. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, you, uh, you put on your Twitter handle that you drive an electric car. What kind? It's a Chevy Bolt. Okay. And at the time, this is the second car that we've had. We, we, so far we've been leasing them. We had a, a Nissan Leaf for three years and then the lease was up. And at that point it was up, definitely needed a car with a, with a better range than that because of the, the normal driving we do and the bolt was the only one out there other than like a hundred thousand dollar tesla yeah <laughs> that, um that had a range of around like 238 miles and on uh, the model 3 had been announced but it wasn't going to be available for at least another year or so because of all the people who were on the waiting list so it's, okay this is this sounds like a, a great great opportunity so we have it for another year and then our lease is up and then then there should be a lot more choices. I know VW is coming out with a whole bunch of new models next year and other companies are, and I should have a much broader choice and you know, maybe to the point where I can actually purchase the next car. Yeah. Um, so far we've been leasing just because the tech has been advancing so far, you know, so fast that I don't want to get stuck with a car with a relatively short range that I would then feel like I was stuck with it after three or four years and, and when something much better it was a combination of range and how fast can it charge? Yeah. And for most, of, I mean, for most of our use, 98% of our use, it's actually 
perfect anywhere around the Bay Area. We could go to that location and back without having to charge. And where it comes up is like, you know, occasionally, like, you know, a couple of times a year, we might take a longer trip um, to like Los Angeles. And it would be nice not to have to stop as often or if, if, if when you do stop that you could charge at a faster rate uh, than this car can charge. I would think the only th- scary thing in your area would be uh, traffic, getting getting stuck longer than you expected or something. Yeah, well, when you're stuck in traffic, though, you're not using your fuel. So it's not really it's not really an issue. I mean, I, I think you could be stopped with your air conditioning on for hours and hours and, and not really re- reduce your, your range by much. I love that. I'm, I'm not a huge car guy, but I'm very interested in this. And uh, I, I'm fortunate enough to work uh, from my home office. And so, you know, for my driving needs, uh, we, we just moved much closer to where my wife works and now neither of us uh, drives very far, but man, they are. It seems like there are a lot of really interesting options in the works. Uh, it's perfectly sensible to me that you wouldn't purchase one yet. <laughs> There's also a, a lot of used electric cars that came off a lease that are available for like maybe 30 or 40% of the original ticker sticker price, you know, with shorter range. But if you're just driving 30 or 40 miles a day at the most, then like a used Nissan Leaf would be more than adequate for that. Mm-hmm. And then you're just charging at home and don't have to go to gas stations and you don't have to do oil changes and you're saving a huge amount in maintenance and uh, fuel costs. So, and for me, I mean, that for me, that was part of it, but it was mostly kind of voting with my pocketbook, sure. know, with my wallet. Back in 2000, we got the Prius when it first came out because it has significantly better uh, gas mileage range than other cars at the time. And I think, so I think we leased one for three years and then we purchased one that we kept for like 12 for 15 years and until we got the Bolt, and then we didn't, this is our only car now. So we don't even have a, a gas car anymore the last two years. And it's been fine. Nice. Very cool. I wanted to ask you about one last thing. Um, you have you have collaborated with some of the greatest sci-fi authors of our time. I, I'm sure that's not something you set out to do, but it just seems like it's happened to you. What were those collaborations? And I mean, if you could work with one more, who would you work with? Oh, um, well, the the ones that I got to work with, you know, it was Douglas Adams was brainstorming with us for a week on Labyrinth, mm-hmm. and. I, w- I was so in awe of him that I think I probably made a fool of myself. I just didn't, like, whenever I talked, I probably stuttered and, and just got really embarrassed. I would. <laughs> yeah, he was, it was hard, but he was, he was, you know, so nice and there wasn't any air of entitlement or it's just like being a, a, a person and it was just great. So I, I loved that experience. He was just so fast with his wit though, that I was mostly taking notes and not being able to contribute a whole lot to the conversation as far that's my memory of it. So it wasn't, it, it was a collaboration in a sense, but it wasn't like a, I didn't feel like a collaboration of peers. Um, I felt like I was like mouth agape most of the time. Yeah. Like, wow, here's, I'm in the room with Douglas Adams <laughs> and he's talking, he's funny. Right. Um, then Orson Scott card w- was, a lot easier because at the time I first met him, I had not read any of his books. So I didn't have that preconceived notion of him being this 
amazing author. And it was after we met that I started reading his books and said, oh, I really love it, a lot of his stuff. And he I actually felt it was much more of a collaboration on a, a few projects. For me, it was more on the that Mirage project, the location-based entertainment project, where um, we spent a lot of time talking about you know, backstory. And, and he ended up writing for each of the games I designed kind of a four or five page introduction of what it would be like following a family into a location-based location-based entertainment arcade to play this game and describing the game from their point of view and you know much more of a story like a short story mm-hmm. and that was really fun and also some brainstorming and some ideas about about the design um so it was great to bounce ideas off of him and there was also there was a project that i I worked on for a while with Neil Stevenson and that I think it was his concept. I think I came on as the game designer and worked on it for several months and then got, you know, took went off the project um, at a point where it just seemed like it was not going to happen. It was kind of getting stopped. I think he might've left it around that same point too. Mm-hmm. And I think I think was there anyone else? I think that was it. <laughs> and yeah, that that was the. I was very interested in hearing about Neil Stevenson. He's one of my uh, favorite authors for sure. Yeah, he, he talks in the introduction to Snow Crash about a project of that type that he did. Was was that a tie-in theoretically for Snow Crash? No, it was. There was no tie-in to anything. It was totally original. And I don't think it ever got published. I right. Think they, I think the company that was doing the work ended up maybe running out of money or something, or, or I think it just stopped at some point. And you know, but I, I really enjoyed working with him too. I mean, he was. I felt that was definitely a collaboration, uh, but I haven't been in touch with him for like fifteen years. So, <laughs> um, any others you would like to work with? Ooh. I should have warned you about this question. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, there there's some. I wouldn't say science fiction writers. I mean, there's some people with vision that I, I mean, I like JJ Abrams. Oh yeah. Work. Um, there's something interactive that I could work on with him. That would be really kind of cool. Um, I guess I'm looking at, and I haven't been reading science fiction of late. I mean, I mean, I I love a lot of Stephen King's work, love reading a lot of Dean Koontz's work. Oh yeah. Um, his tends to be, I mean, he has a huge range, but I like a lot of the story ideas that he comes up with. And yeah, do you have one that you would you would love? Who's your favorite? <laughs> turn, turn it on me. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I never thought about this until you were speaking about it, but I thought, and this isn't, you know, necessarily an author, but I would love to collaborate with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson on something. Hmm. Because I've heard him in interviews just put out these theoretical things from his mind based on, you know, the vast amount of knowledge he has about basically everything. Uh, and, and he'll say stuff just completely offhand. I'm sure he doesn't even remember saying it, but I, they like change the way I look at things. And I think, man, if there was like a series of games or uh, books or movies about that, it would be the most popular thing on earth. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I love these these thinkers. And and like you say, they, this sort of uh, transcends the the medium a little bit, but... Uh, several of these people with these visions, it's like, I, I would love to, uh, you know, not every, every idea you hear from the average person is a winner. These guys just spout gold all the time. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's an interesting experience when you work with someone who 
who has only worked in linear medium and you start talking about interactive with them and this this may be less of an issue now because more people have played games but, but definitely back I remember in the in the 90s where all these directors were, were like wow I, I gotta do interactive I gotta do CD-ROM and it's tough to to flip your um, your point of view from doing a linear experience where you're the author and you're making everything happen to actually something where you're kind of more of a facilitator mm-hmm. and guiding someone through through game to, to have an experience you want them to have, but giving them a lot of freedom. And it, it's not an automatic transfer of, of ability to go from one to the other. I think you have to be a gamer for that to happen. I think Steven Spielberg is probably pretty good at that because he, he actually likes playing games. I heard that, yeah. Yeah, but there's others who may not, may not be heavy-duty gamers that think about doing something interactive and I think it just falls short because they don't have the same control over over that experience that they might have on a movie or in a book. And and maybe in the new VR age, you know, we head further in that direction. Yeah, and, and I I still feel like we're we're learning how do you how do you direct attention to where you want them to look. So you don't you know if you're in a mystery and you're looking in the wrong direction when someone stabs someone. True. Yeah. Have them wait. You know, hey, we're waiting to stab you, the person, until you look at us. Um, yeah. I mean, you could do stuff like that, but you know, there's a bunch of tricks that we knew how to do in 2D experiences that um, kind of fall apart when you go to 3D. I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, please tell people where they can follow you, uh, what you're currently doing that they can check into, anything you want. Yeah, well, um, I'm probably more active on Twitter. Uh, David. B is in boy Fox, David B Fox. And I'm also accessible on Facebook. Same, same username there or LinkedIn, same username. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, but I think on Twitter is probably where I'm more, more active. So I'm more likely to respond if I see something with my name. I've been working on a project with Gary Winnick from Thimbleweed Park and from LucasArts, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a hybrid interactive comic experience, which we're now you know, we did a prototype and we're looking for, for funding for, um, for the company. And I'm also looking at, like I mentioned, look at, you know, doing projects on location-based entertainment and more VR stuff and, uh, some more, you know, more possible things that, that I can't talk about yet, but I'm always, always looking at what to do. Um, I really enjoyed the last year where I actually got to speak at, at three different conferences in Europe. Mm-hmm. And that hasn't really happened for a really long time there. And there were some talks from my talk besides the one in Germany that in, at DevCon that I just was out. There's a talk I gave in Poland um, in May and there was one in Italy a year ago. And I think you could probably find me on, on YouTube. I have a channel where I just make a list of any talk that I, I've, I've given um, added to the list. So you can look there and find me there. Very cool. Well, I'm excited to hear that we uh, have not seen the last of your creativity. And I know people will be uh, very excited to see what comes next for you. Good. Well, thank you. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely perfect. Great. Thanks for, for the great questions. You got me thinking there a bunch of times. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll warn you next time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
Okay, I want to thank David Fox one more time because he was amazing. He did this while he was sick. I did too, but I did not expect him to do it while he was sick, and I really appreciate his time. Go reach out to him on social media. Tell him what an awesome guy he is, how much you enjoy his projects, and uh, somebody come fund his stuff, right? Let's let's see some more David Fox projects. I, uh, I do not think you'll be disappointed. If you enjoy Game Dev Breakdown, we would love to have you subscribe anywhere podcasts can be found. I mean anywhere. Check out show notes at CodeWritePlay.com. Check out our Patreon community at Patreon.com slash CodeWritePlay. And uh, let us know how you enjoy the show. Leave a review if you think of it. Tell a friend. That's how we uh, get to keep doing this cool stuff. So you guys keep playing. Keep working hard. Talk to you soon. <laughs>